our last Sunday, last sermon in a series called Love, Sex, and Loneliness. And if you haven't been around for the whole series, don't worry. Today is a standalone message. You don't have to have been here the last couple of weeks to know what's going on. We're going to start today in Exodus chapter 15. And as you're turning to Exodus chapter 15 in your Bibles, I want you to know the context of what's going on. Because sometimes we just open up scripture and we read a passage and we're like, it'd be like opening up to kill a mockingbird and reading like a line from the book. And you're like, I have no idea what that's all about. So the context that's going on here is that 400 years The people of God, the Israelites, have been slaves in Egypt. And God hears their cry, and in God's perfect timing, he calls a guy named Moses. And God powerfully uses Moses to bring freedom to the people of Israel. It's through a a series of miracles that God does, and, and, and to show his power to Pharaoh, and to show his power to the Egyptians, and ultimately, Pharaoh relents, and he lets the people of Israel go, and so, so, so they, they're free, but then the, the Pharaoh and his armies and, 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 and the captains, they, they come chasing after the Israelites. And God does one more miracle where the Red Sea is parted. How many of you remember that from Sunday school? Or maybe you're really old and you watched a movie called The Ten Commandments or, or you know, something like that. And so, so he, he parts the Red Sea. The Israelites have just gone through the Red Sea, which would be phenomenal to have actually experienced, right? They've gone through the Red Sea, and this is where we pick up in Exodus chapter 15, verse 22. It says, then Moses led the people of Israel away from the Red Sea. They've just gone through the Red Sea. God has killed all the Egyptians that were pursuing them, and now they are moving away from the Red Sea out into the desert of Shur. They traveled in this desert for three days without finding any water. And when they came to the oasis of Marah, the water was too bitter to drink. So they called the place Mara, which means bitter. And the question I want to ask you is, can you imagine being surrounded by water and yet dying of dehydration? Surrounded by what? Red Sea. Yet the Red Sea is one of the saltiest bodies of water on planet Earth. They couldn't drink it, undrinkable. They had just gone through the Red Sea, I mean seeing it on both sides of them, gone through the Red Sea. They'd gone three days now where they haven't had water. Their lips are chapped, they're, they're sunburned, they're, they're, they're like, if we don't have water, we're going to die. Can you imagine the dehydration that is setting in on them? And finally, they see this body of water in the distance, and this is my imagination, this isn't in scripture, but I just see Israelites, like, as soon as they see that water, I mean, they're sprinting toward the water, some are diving in, they start lapping it up and as soon as the water hits their mouth they spew it out because there's something wrong with it it's contaminated the bible uses the word bitter to describe what's going on water everywhere and not a drop to drink water everywhere not a drop to drink i think that's a great description of our culture right now when it comes to sex sex everywhere We're going to talk about how pervasive it actually is in our culture. And yet all the studies, and these aren't Christian studies, are showing us that people are enjoying sex less and less. It's not as fulfilling as it used to be. Sex everywhere, no enjoyment, no satisfaction, no fulfillment. 36% of the internet is pornography. At any given moment in the United States of America alone, 1.7 million pornographic videos are being streamed. Right now, 1.7 million pornographic videos are being streamed. The attack on our kids is ruthless. Among 13 to 14-year-old boys, this one breaks me, 
Among 13 to 14 year old boys, one out of every three is a heavy porn user. These aren't Christian statistics. It's everywhere, it surrounds us. We know the statistics regarding men and pornography, and I mean, if I say them, you, you, just, you, you won't even care because you're like, yeah, I've heard that, yeah, men are animals, they're, they're dogs. Here, here's the research that is really starting to, to come out, is that now we live in a time that one out of every six women, including Christians, struggle with an addiction to pornography. Not just that they've viewed pornography, one out of every six would say that they actually have an addiction to pornography. And here's the thing about women in pornography in particular. More than 80% of women who have this addiction take it offline. Researchers tell us, quote, women far more likely than men are likely to act out their behaviors in real life, such as having multiple partners, casual sex, or affairs. There is an attack on kids and moms and dads, on everyone, because the enemy knows how powerful sex is. I'm entering my 23rd year of ministry, and I can tell you in the first five to ten years, if a couple came to me and there was an issue of adultery, almost every single situation, it was a man who was guilty of adultery. In the last five years, I was thinking about this the other day, almost every situation that I've encountered of couples with adultery, it's been the woman. And it's because of social media, and it's because of hooking up with an old classmate on Facebook or on Instagram, Starts with just a casual conversation. And because women are more likely to take this into, men are content with just the images and getting a release from the images. Not so with women. The church needs to speak to this. It's everywhere around us. Some of you right now are in a bad mood because you're like, I came to a church to hear a nice message. I was hoping maybe from the book of Psalms or maybe from the Gospels. And he's talking about sex. Really? It's everywhere around us. And if we don't talk to this, Our kids suffer, our marriages suffer, our church suffers. So there's several things that we need to know about God and sex just right out of the gates. And so I want to cover these so that we can get to some of the other issues. But this is so important that we we all understand this. First of all, we need to understand that sex is pleasurable. Okay, I'm not up here as a pastor. Sometimes when pastors, churches talk about sex, like we make it sound like it's a curse from God. Listen, the, you, you, a minute ago I said there's several things you need to know about God and sex. The reason why you need to know that sex is pleasurable is that God created it that way. God gave us sex to be enjoyed. In fact, when you think about it, sex is the first gift that God gave man if you don't count the nap. I count the nap. Any other nappers, Sunday afternoon nappers in this room? Come on, glory to God, right? (laughs) Genesis chapter 2, God gives Adam a nap. And he wakes up from the nap, and there is this beautiful naked woman. Like, he's like, I don't think I just dreamed that. Like, there she is. And God isn't going, Adam, you pervert, get your mind out of the gutter. Adam's like, that's why I brought her to you, right? Some, some of you think that, that God created sex only for, for, for reproduction so that we would, as a necessary evil to get babies into the world. But God is clever. He could have he made it so that God would just sneeze and there'd be like new babies, new people, human beings populating the earth. No, he chose a pleasurable way of providing for procreation. There's a whole book of the Bible that speaks to the joys of sex called the Song of Solomon. Like, God created this. Satan didn't create sex. God did. It's beautiful. 
He created it to be pleasurable. He knows how it can be the most pleasurable because he created it. He invented it. The second thing, though, that you need to know about sex is not only is sex pleasurable, sex is powerful. Sex is powerful. Since God gave us this gift, since he invented and created sex, he has the right to tell us how to use it. This afternoon, if if you were to go to Home Depot and you were to buy a chainsaw, and you get that chainsaw and you bring it home and you get out a box cutter and you open up the box, you're going to find that before you even get to the chainsaw, there's going to be a plethora of, of, of sheets of paper with warnings all over it, right? Like you're literally going to have to like dig through all the, all the warnings, all the instructions to get to that chainsaw. And once you finally get to that chainsaw and pull it out of the box, your chainsaw itself is going to have stickers all over it with warnings as well. And you don't think to yourself for a second that Home Depot hates you. You understand how powerful this is. Some of my favorite stickers, here's one of the stickers that you'll find is, moving, digging teeth will kill you or cut off arm or leg. Stay away. They're not even nice labels. They're not even nice stickers. Here's my favorite. Do not hold the wrong end of a chainsaw. No, duh. (laughs) Right? And these rules are for your good. The people at Home Depot don't want you suing them because you cut your arm off. They're for your good. In a similar way, and I know it's not a perfect analogy, but God who invented sex and gave it to us in the first place, he tells us how to use it, and yet the enemy comes to us and says, well, there God is, trying to kill your joy, trying to take away your fun. He's holding out on you. He knows that this is going to be pleasurable. Yeah, he knows it's going to be pleasurable, and he tells you how to use this so that you can have the maximum enjoyment. At the very moment that sex was first given to us, right then and there, God spoke into how it should be used. And and his instructions are so simple. In fact, it's so short that you could literally tweet the instructions that God gives us. Let let me read it to you from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Here it is. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Very simple Very easy, it's not complicated. First of all, a man leaves his parents, a woman leaves her parents. Second, they are joined together through this covenant of marriage, and then the two become one flesh. And this is so simple, and it's so profound, 4,000 years later, when Jesus was walking this earth, and he's confronted with an issue of marriage, he quotes this, he quotes what we just read from the book of Genesis. 4,000 years later, Jesus quotes this, and he, and, he, and he gives veracity, he gives, he, this is true. And Jesus echoing it, he's saying, this is true. You need to pay attention to this. And then he adds the words, so what God brought together, let no man dr- draw apart. But we listen to this, and, and you, went, you, you expect a pastor to preach this this morning, and, and you'll look respectful and all that, but some of you, I guarantee you, 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 inwardly you're rolling your eyes and you're saying, what is this, a bunch of Amish people? You got your buggies parked out in the parking lot? Like, come on, this is 2022. Like, I think we know the deal with sex, right? But do we? Is it working for us? Is what culture is telling us and and what society through through entertainment, through movies, through TV shows, through YouTube videos, is it really working for us? Last month, and this isn't a Christian publication, 
The Wall Street Journal literally last month, February 2022, published an article, and here's the title of the article. Quote, too risky to wed in your 20s? Not if you avoid cohabitating first. It's a stinking Wall Street Journal telling us what God has been saying all along. Some of you are still stuck with the word cohabitating. What does that mean? It means shacking up. It means, it means having sex outside of marriage. The Wall Street Journal, it goes on, it says, quote, research shows that marrying young without ever having lived together with a partner makes for some of the lowest divorce rates. Well, no, we got to live together so we know that we're actually congruent. You know, it'd be really stupid for us to get married without trying it out first, right? Maybe God does know what's best. Maybe, maybe he knows what is going to be for your maximum enjoyment. Research tells us that those who don't have a history of pornography and don't have previous partners report higher levels of enjoyment of sex within marriage. Okay, if, if you don't like me using terminology, just cover your ears for a moment. Women are twice as likely to experience orgasm in a committed marriage relationship than in a casual encounter. This is science. These are people outside of the church doing research. They're giving, telling us exactly what God told us from the very beginning. Sex is pleasurable, but it's also powerful. And so God tells us how to utilize it. And it, it, this all flies right in the face of culture to the point that some of you have been so conditioned that you're like, I, I, I still don't believe it. Can I tell you, culture tells us to do whatever you feel like doing. You don't need to restrain yourself as long as you're not hurting anybody else. It, you, just, you just be you. Do you. Do what you think is best. Act on your own feelings. Culture tells us that there's no God and that we are all essentially animals. And yet, isn't it interesting that Hollywood, who tells us to just do whatever we want to do and, and puts out all these films that have this stuff all over it, Hollywood would be the first that as soon as someone acts upon those animalistic urgings and cravings and does what feels good to them, they're the first ones to turn around and cancel people. Isn't it interesting? Do whatever you want to do. You're despicable. I can't believe you did that, you pervert. I was doing what I wanted to do. I was following my animalistic cravings and urges. It's deception. It's deception. And the deception is alive and well in the church as well. Let's talk about pornography. Pornography is as addictive as heroin. Research tells us that pornography lights up the same exact centers of the brain as drugs do. Time Magazine did a 2016 cover story on pornography. This wasn't just an article. They took a whole issue to talk about the dangers of... This isn't a Christian publication, guys. They report that a whole segment of people addicted to pornography now admit then when they actually get to be with a real live person and have an actual sexual encounter with a real live person, that they don't have the ability to perform. They said, quote, pornography is literally conditioning addicts to only be satisfied in a certain context. And so hundreds of thousands are not able to enjoy the pleasure and the power of sex as God intended because of pornography. Sex everywhere and not a drop to drink. It's really quiet in here. So what do we do with this? 
I, I need to pause before we move on because what I found is that a lot of people are going, I need help. But there's such a shame that is associated with this issue, especially in the church, that the one place that we should go to get help, we feel like we can't. There's such a stigma around pornography and around sexual addictions that, that we, we can't get help. I was talking to a guy, I think this has been several years ago, and he grew up in a Christian home, had, had, by his accounts, was a follower of Jesus, and when I had the conversation with him, he is now an atheist. And whenever I'm talking to an atheist, like, I, the temptation is to start trying to, like, drive home theology and, and start, you know, debating philosophy and, and all these types of things. But my experience has been it really doesn't go anywhere. What I'm always interested in is a two-word question, what happened? What happened? I, I'm just interested. So the story is this guy grew up in the church and somewhere along the way, got addicted to pornography, and he was in a very fundamentalist church and couldn't tell anybody about that. And so he said, I would go to the altars and beg God to take away this addiction. I mean, just, God, please, you got to take this away from me. And here's what he said. He said, God never did. I stopped believing in him. I wanted God to take this addiction away. He didn't. He's not real. Here's what I want you to know. God wants you to be free. But what I have found, and I wish, I wish it was true that everyone who cried out to God for, for relief from any addiction, alcoholism, drug abuse, eating disorders, any kind of addiction, any kind of plight like that, I, I wish that it would, like, you would get zapped by God and it would instantly go away. And I love the stories when God does do that. But can I tell you, my experience as a pastor is that if we sing, change my heart, oh God, make me ever true, God is often going, I want to change your heart, but you got to participate. you got to do something. It's not just going to happen through singing a song. It's not going to happen through just praying a prayer or crying some tears. You're going to have to do something. At each of your uh, seats this morning, there's a, there's a resource, or maybe it's every other chair um, because of, uh, of numbers of those. If it's not near you, I promise you there's going to be chairs around afterward that you can grab one. But would, would you grab this card real quick? I don't want to be the pastor who just beats everybody up. You pornography-loving people, stop it. And you go, okay, nice, but it didn't work. So what we want to do is come up with some resources that can actually help you. If you need help, yes, pray. Ask Jesus to help you. But then put some, put some effort into this yourself. The first resource there is Pure Life Ministries. PureLifeMinistries.org. Go to their website. They have some incredible resources that can help you. I mean, incredible resources. Will it cost you some money? Yep. You're going to have to spend some money. Because resources aren't free to create and to make. And can I tell you, I tell people all the time, man, get out of debt as quickly as you can. But when it comes to issues of your life, an addiction, a marriage issue, man, that's the one area where I'll say, use a credit card if you have to. Get free. Get free. There's, a, there's some books on there that you can take a look at. There's web filters and softwares. We just gave you one because I, I didn't want to give you 100 different varieties or options. But if you want more, just Google it. And you'll find there's so many resources that are out there. Counseling. Some of these things, and I know that sometimes in church circles, maybe you grew up in a church where there was a stigma on counseling. I, wanted to, I want you to know, counseling, if you have the right counselor, 
can work. It can be valuable. Well, I had a bad experience. Yeah, you probably have had a bad experience at a restaurant too. But I guarantee you've gone out to eat since then. You just didn't go out to that restaurant again. If you've had a bad experience with a counselor, don't go back to that counselor. Find another one. Get help. Get help. If you come, listen, you, you come to me and you say, hey, I've got an addiction to pornography. I'm not going to look at my feet and act all embarrassed. I'm going to say, thank you so much for sharing that with me. I'm honored that you share that with me. Now let's get some help. And so I want you to know, this, we want this to be a safe place. Oh, by the way, just statistically speaking, I'm not a prophet in saying this. Statistically speaking, a whole lot of people in this room are struggling with this issue. And so don't let the enemy tell you that you're the only one. That's a lie. Just like with any issue, not just pornography, you are not the only one. There is help available. God wants you to be free. He wants to release you. Sex everywhere and not a drop to drink. I've been reading this book by Levi Lusco on the issue of sexuality. It's called Swipe Right, The Life and Death Power of Sex and Romance. Levi Lusco is a, a pretty hip pastor these days and, and writes a pretty interesting book. And he tells a story of something that happened back in the 1500s and 1600s. This is when we were first, Europeans were first discovering the new world as they called it. And one of the things that they discovered in the new world that they imported back to Europe was a strange fruit that nobody had heard of. And the only way they could describe this fruit is that it looks kind of like a pine cone, but it tastes like an apple. And it was kind of like this mysterious alien looking fruit. We now call it the pine apple, right? Pineapples were the stuff back in the 1500s and the 1600s. Adjusted for inflation at its peak, one pineapple would sell, get this, for $8,000. $8,000. People would have, rich people, by the way, rich people would have parties, and people would come in a party, and the whole deal would be to get to see a pineapple in person. Most of the time, they would never eat them. It was such a big deal to actually taste a pineapple. This is actually from an account from 1600 something or other. Quote, it was said that the taste of a pineapple in your mouth is a defining moment of a person's entire life. So, so what happened? Because today, in my opinion, you can argue with me, I think a pineapple is one of the least glamorous fruits around. I don't go to the grocery store and say, oh man, make sure to pick me up a pineapple just doesn't make my list. So, so what has changed? What has changed is namely its availability. It's not mysterious. You can get it anywhere. I mean, there's even weirdos, get this, that will put it on their pizza. <laughs> Disgusting. I'm looking at you, Carrie. Looking at you, Carrie. What are, Ken, why are you talking to us about pineapples? I think it's a, picture, a perfect picture of what has happened in our society regarding sex. God designed sex to be enjoyed in one very specific, very guarded, very controlled context, the marriage bed. There would be only one person, potentially, that you would ever be naked before. And the two of you together, I know this sounds puritanical, it sounds straight out of Amish country, but the two of you together would enjoy this pleasurable and powerful treasure. And you would never be laying there comparing yourself with former partners that you had been with in the past. 
You would never be fighting pornographic images in your mind. It would be so wonderful and so exotic and so noteworthy because it's so special. And that's what's happened in our culture. Sex everywhere, not a drop to drink. It's no longer special. We're surrounded by it. And no wonder, and this is from science, from our culture, no wonder it's not satisfying us anymore. So there's a story in the Gospels, we find this in John chapter 4, where Jesus goes out of his way to meet one-on-one with a scandalous woman. This is a woman who's been married five times and is now hooking up with a guy who isn't her husband. And Jesus, Jesus actually sends his disciples away intentionally, meets her at noontime, and she would go to the well at noon because none of the other women were there. The women were smart enough to go there early in the morning. Why would you go at noon when the sun is beating down on you? And so she knew that if she went at that time, no one else would be there. But Jesus had an agenda in mind. He wanted to go there to tell her how, how much God really cares about her. I, I, growing up, I would always hear sermons about this woman, and, and they would just talk about like how horrible of a woman she must be, that she'd been divorced that many times. But when you think about it culturally, a woman was property. A woman wasn't even able to divorce her husband. This means that five times men had told her, I don't want you. You're worthless to me. I don't love you anymore. I, I just wonder how much insecurity this woman has experienced, how much shame how much hurt that this woman had experienced. And Jesus looks her in the eyes and he cares for her as a daughter of God, as someone created in the image of God. And he looked at her like he would look at you. And he says this in John chapter 4, verse 13. He says, anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. In other words, you're drinking from the water of this world, but it's bitter this, this water, and he's pointing at the well, this water can't possibly satisfy you. Jesus goes on the very next verse. He says, but those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Jesus says, you're looking for something here on this earth that only I can do for you. I can fulfill you. What's incredible about this woman is that she would leave this conversation with Jesus, go back to her community, and become the first evangelist in the Bible, telling everybody in her community about this one who knows everything about me. And they would come by the hundreds to hear from Jesus. Absolutely amazing. The cross can make what is bitter sweet, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've done. So let's go back to Exodus chapter 15. And the story of the Israelites, and they're so thirsty, and there's water everywhere, but the water is contaminated. The water is bitter. It's undrinkable. What are they going to do in that moment? Scripture goes on in verse 25 of chapter 15 to say, So Moses cried out to the Lord for help, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. Now, if you look at the literal Hebrew here, in fact, the King James Version spells this out, it's basically... Moses cried out for help, and the Lord showed him. The literal Hebrew is the Lord showed him a tree. And I'm thinking if I'm Moses, I'm going, we need some help here. We need some water. And God's saying, look at this tree. Now, we we laugh, but in Scripture, the tree is always the imagery that reminds us of the cross of Jesus. 
that hundreds of years later, Jesus would be stripped of his clothes and his arms would be stretched out and nails would be driven through his wrists and driven through his legs. And he'd be hoisted up into the sky where people would mock him and make fun of him and throw things at him. And he would slowly suffocate as he gave his life voluntarily of his own accord. He could have ended the whole deal at any point, but he did it. Looking toward you and looking toward me. Knowing our propensity for sin. Knowing our helplessness and our brokenness and our addictions. Knowing that we weren't going to follow his instructions. We weren't going to do things the way that he told us to do them. That we were going to think that we were smarter and wiser. He knows all of this and he goes to the cross to take upon himself our sin. To take upon himself our shame. To take upon himself our insecurities. To take upon himself the punishment that we deserve. So Moses cried out to the Lord for help and the Lord showed him a tree. And Moses, and we don't quite, this is why a lot of modern translations say a piece of wood, because the next thing it says is Moses threw it into the water. And here's the cool thing. And this made the water good to drink. What are you saying, Ken? I'm saying the cross makes the bitter sweet. No matter your past, no matter the choices that you've made, Some of you in this room, the things that were done to you by others, and you've always felt guilt and shame that maybe you should have done something different. It wasn't your fault. And we carry this stuff around with us. And God wants to make you a new person. God wants to free you. He wants to give you a new heart and a new start. And say, Ken, that sounds too good to be true. I know. I know. Humans, we like to try to complicate things. Surely we're going to have to go through a class. Surely we're going to have to do something to show God how really we mean this. The starting point is just coming before God in humility and saying, God, I don't have what it takes. I'm broken. I'm helpless. I'm powerless. I've sinned against you. I feel the weight of my shame. I feel the weight of my guilt. I feel the weight of my anger. Would you come and forgive me? Would you come and be the leader of my life? You be the Lord. You be the master of my life. To be clear, we're not saying that Jesus just becomes a part of your life. We're saying he becomes front and central in your life. He's not the, oh, I think I remember Jesus being in a box in my garage somewhere. I I, I think a couple weeks ago I was out there and I think I remember seeing, let me me figure out where, no, this is Jesus' front and center in your life, calling the shots that you become an actual active follower of Jesus. And he begins to reveal areas of your life where you need to make adjustments so that you can be in alignment with him. And he will point you to helps. And he will point you to relationships and to people who can help you. Not because he doesn't like you, not because you're disgusting, not because you're so horrible, but because he sees the you that he created you to be. And he wants to restore you. I've got an uncle who has done, I should have put gotten some pictures from my mom has restored some incredible cars. You see the before picture of these cars, and you're like, that is a it's junk. 
Why would you even waste your time? But it's a hobby. I mean, he will pour hours into restoring these vehicles. And then you see the after picture and the vehicle, it looks like it's brand new. It's incredible. And this is what God does with you and me. Like we walk by someone, we go, there's no hope for them. Loser. They'll never get anywhere in life. And God goes, oh no. You don't understand. You don't see what I see. Bring them to me. Bring them to me. Let me have Adam. You'll never believe the difference I can make in that person's life. Not because he's disgusted with you, because he loves you. He loves you. He delights and taking something messed up and bringing it into order, into life. God loves you. He's not against you. No matter what you've done, no matter what you're addicted to, no matter what's been done to you, he loves you. And the first step is receiving his grace and giving him the position of lordship in your life. So would you bow your heads, close your eyes, We're not going to embarrass you. We're not going to have you stand up. We're not going to call attention to you. But if you're here today and you say, Ken, I need Jesus in my life. I need him to forgive me of my sins. I need him not just to be a part of my life. I need him to be the main event, central, the leader in my life. If that's you, would you just raise your hand so I can pray for you this morning? Yeah. Yeah. After you've raised your hand, you can lower it. Yeah, right there. Anybody else? looking around from left to right. Anybody else? Yeah. Anybody else? Yeah. See you back there. Yeah. Thank you, Jesus. He loves you so much. He loves you so much. Father, I pray for those who've raised their hands. If you've raised your hand, I would just invite you under your breath right now. Just pray your own prayer. Jesus, have mercy on me. Forgive me. You're the only one who can. Restore me. I give you my life. You call the shots. You be in charge. You lead me. Give me eyes to see what you are doing and ears to hear how you are leading me. Give me the courage to really follow you. Father, I pray for your life in their life. Thank you for what you're doing. In Jesus' name, amen. So many of you raised your hands, and if that's something for the first time, I know some, some of you that was, you're just reaffirming what God has already been doing inside of you, but if that's for the first time, at the bottom of your connection card, it says, my first steps. Would you check that box that says, I'm starting a relationship with Jesus? Maybe it's a reaffirmation. There's another box underneath that that says, I'm, I think it says something like I'm renewing, whatever it says up there. I'm reaffirming my relationship with Jesus. Thank you, Andrew, putting that up there. Make sure you check that. And then on your way out, we got some greeters that are going to have some white buckets. If, if you're helping with that, you can go ahead and go back there and get those buckets. And, and as you're leaving, make sure to put those connection cards in those white buckets. Appreciate you doing that. Um, and here's the deal. If you need help, Ask somebody for help. Don't let the enemy, here, here's the thing, when you have an addiction, any addiction, the longer that you keep it secret, you're keeping it in darkness. And you know what happens in darkness? Filthy, disgusting things grow 
in darkness. Mildew grows in darkness. But when you bring that into the light, now you're giving God an opportunity to do something incredible. How do we bring it into the light? Tell somebody. There's, there's people in this room that would feel so honored that you would tell them, and they will walk with you through the process of getting help. And you can't do it on your own. That's the whole thing of the kingdom of God. I can't, but God can. So I'm going to partner with him, and I'm going to let him. And he will make all things new. Would you stand to your feet? So the last verse of 2 Corinthians says this, and this is our benediction. May the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. God bless you. If you need prayer, we have prayer partners that are available. They would love to pray with you. Otherwise, we'll see you next week for our 15th birthday. It's going to be awesome. We'll see you guys later.